Alright, well you can open your Bibles to Psalm 123. For those of you visiting, we don't have a lot of flash at Rock Valley Bible Church, but we do have is the Word of God. And that is sufficient. And I know my, my prayer today is that God would simply encourage us and edify us by His Word because that's all, that's all I have today. Just God's Word. So let me pray before I open the Word. Lord, I do trust that it's Your Word that gives life. And uh, it's the truth of the Gospel, God, that energizes us and stirs us. And so, God, yet again today, we have a chance to open Your Word and uh, just dig into the minds here of Psalm 123. Uh, Lord, we pray that it would stir our souls with fresh affections towards You. That You would draw us to, to look towards You and to trust in You. Even when life circumstances are bleak and even when we don't fully understand. Father, because You move in mysterious ways and the way that You move is not the way that we might like. God, and yet they are our paths that You have ordained for us. And Father, may we really trust and find God, Your goodness through them. And so, Lord, we pray that today might be another day just to help us encourage amidst all the troubles and tribulations and opposition we might face to look to You as the sole source of our deliverance. So, God, I pray Your anointing now my message. Holy Spirit, come and open hearts. God, refresh, convict, reprove where is needed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, God's people have always faced a measure of opposition. Whether that's Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Or whether it's Joseph who lived a righteous life and yet was hated by his brothers and thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery. Or whether it was on a national level, the people of God, Israel, were oppressed by the Egyptians for 400 years in slavery. Oppression always hasn't come through unbelieving pagan people who knew no better, but sometimes it came from within. Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery, and yet time and time again, the people of Israel rebelled against him. Whether that was at the Red Sea when they were scared when they saw Pharaoh's army coming in attack, or whether that was when the water was bitter and they couldn't drink anything, or when they didn't have anything to eat and God provided them manna, or whether it was when there was nothing to drink, God provided water from the rock. They questioned Moses. They opposed him. Has God only spoken through Moses, they said, or they rebelled, Koradathan and Abiram, wanting to be leaders. In David's day, it was his own son Absalom, who should have known better, turned against his father. In Jeremiah's day, it was the king of Israel, the king of God's nation, who imprisoned Jeremiah, had him cast into a cistern where he fell deep into the mud. Sometimes it had been political, like when Sanballat and Tobiah attempted to discourage the workers from rebuilding the temple because they didn't like the Jews. They hated the Jews, in fact. Sometimes it was personal. It's when the satraps tried to trap Daniel in regard to religion, um, his relationship with the Lord, because they didn't want him to rule over them, lest the Jew rule over them. Sometimes the opposition was religious. The, the Pharisees arrested Peter and John who were drawing people to believe in Jesus and away from their religion. Opposition. God's people have always faced a measure of opposition. And the greatest example of that, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did no wrong, 
And he walked on the earth and yet he was hated by the religious establishment of his day. And the reason was simple because his righteousness exposed their sin. And they did not like their sin exposed. They hated the light. So they killed him hanging upon the cross. And, and it was really the, the clash of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God against the kingdom of this world that clashes. God's people have always known opposition. In our day and age, the same battle rages as followers of Christ, at one point or another, we will face opposition. Paul said to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul encouraged the churches of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. He said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's just a hard road. It's the path of following Christ. And so my question to you this morning Really, the question that flows out of Psalm 123 is this. How will you respond when opposition comes? How will you respond when opposition comes? Notice I didn't ask how will you respond if opposition comes. I said when. How will you respond when opposition comes? Because it's not a matter of if, if, it's a matter of when trouble is brewing all around us. I think on the national level, trouble is brewing in um, recent weeks, the Supreme Court has struck down DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, as unconstitutional. And uh, that means the road has been paved for same-sex marriage to propagate in our nation like wildfire. This will mean tough choices for Christians, how to respond. So we need to stand on the authority of God's Word that homosexuality is a sin. And it may very well bring persecution. It's on a national level that's taking place. But listen, Doma wasn't struck down in a vacuum. It's not like the Supreme Court justices are, are off in a world of themselves and just decided to cast this down. This is, the, this is where our society is going. Increasingly anti-God, our society is drifting. And it is drifting fast. And more and more we'll find our place as more and more strangers in a foreign land. It's where we should be, where we are. But more and more, we're finding that to be the case. Even on a personal level, you'll probably clash. You probably have clashed before if you're a faithful witness to Christ. It's just a small example of it. It's really tiny. But it happened last week. Avon and I were in Denver with the Crossway Chapel group Huddle, just their network of churches, as many of you know. And we were in Denver Airport and going through security. And as we were going through security, there was this uh, husband and wife uh, just right in front of us. And they, they looked like you all. They looked like Rock Valley Bible Church, three little kids, and uh, going through security. And the husband was kind of frustrated at all the work that needs to be done just with putting three kids through security. And, and Yvonne, I know that very well. And so I tried to kind of encourage him or make light or just say, hey, you know, we know what that's about. We have put many kids through security before. And I said, um, kind of got to the point, I said, yeah, we have five kids. And he turned to me and he said, why? And then, then he kind of continued on and, and then I had a chance to kind of, he turned back and I said, well, because children are a gift of the Lord. And he turned back to me and said, that's a lie. And then continued right on through security. I mean, that's just a small thing. I mean, it's not like he oppressed me or anything, but it's one thing just to have a chance encounter with somebody at the airport, but when that person is your neighbor, it has some other implications. 
And it's not like he was a, against family. He had children there. Probably speaks about how he saw his children as a burden rather than a blessing. But I think the issue that got him was when I said children are a gift of the Lord, I think he, as I process through things, I think he didn't believe in God. I think he believed that was a lie. And it has implications then down through, um, um, through your relationship potentially with people as you try to reach out to them and share Christ with them. And, and it's hard. Harder and harder. And you will face opposition with those sorts of people the more and more that uh, we live. And if you haven't faced that opposition, I just say you've not been bold. You've not been talking to people. But as you open your mouth a little bit, and that was just really easy, maybe quote a little bit of Bible, maybe quote people's way of righteousness. When you confront their sin, you'll see people will friction and they'll steam up and they'll let you have it. Opposition of God's people. And so the question to you this morning is how will you respond when... Opposition comes in your life. Well, our text this morning, we see the psalmist facing opposition. And he sees how he deals with it. May we deal with it in the same way because he is an example and a model of how we ought to deal with it. Again, this is a song of ascents. You can see it right there in the superscription. We've been going through the songs of ascents. Uh, I think today is number... Boy, I, I don't exactly know. Maybe today is number 10, 11. I don't know. We've got four or five left. I haven't counted them. But these are the songs that Israel sang as they went up to Jerusalem to worship uh, three times a year according to divine command. Um, these are the songs because you always go up to Jerusalem, whether you're north, south, east, or west. You always go up. These are the folk songs that they sang. And they teach us a thing or two about worship. There are 15 of them beginning in Psalm 120 and going to Psalm 134. And uh, we're looking at these psalms really to help our hearts with matters of worship. And here in Psalm 123, he's dealing with opposition. He's dealing with those who are against him. And let's look at how he deals with it. Now, Psalm 123 is, is really a prayer. And the psalmist says this, To you I lift up my eyes. To you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters. As the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until He be gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. And here's the opposition. For we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. And that was his prayer to the Lord. He's just praying to God. Obviously, the way he deals with oppression all around him is that he looks to the Lord. He looks to the One who's enthroned in the heavens. He looks for God's grace to come down. I've entitled my message this morning, Looking Up. That's where the psalmist looks when facing opposition in this life. He lifts his gaze up to the Lord. His actions are, are good examples for us. Now, we don't know who wrote these words. Nor do we know the exact circumstances surrounding the writings, but we do have a hint why he wrote. But the wonderful thing about the Psalms, just, just by the way, when you don't know who wrote them and you don't know fully what was happening when they were written, that means that they can be applicable in many, many, many different circumstances in your life. You don't have to try to pigeonhole it and just say, well, this is the only time. But you can just, it will resonate in your heart. Anytime when you're facing opposition, these words are helpful for us. But we see in verses 3 and 4 what was going on in the psalmist's life. Look at the second half of verse 3. 
We are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. He began, verse 1, talking about himself. I lift my eyes up to you. And pretty soon then, we see that it's not just his own troubles, it's the troubles of the community around him. We are looking to you, O Lord. Be gracious to us. And we are filled with contempt. And I think that's people talking all around. People filled with despising them and hatred of them. And verses 3 and 4, really, we find the psalmist in the community was filled with contempt. And actually, I want to start in verses 3 and 4, and then we'll come back to 1 and 2, just because I think it works best if we figure out what was going on in their life, because then verses 1 and 2 will come with more power so we understand what was going on in their life. They were filled with contempt. They were greatly despised, greatly hated. And the context of Psalm 123 as the Psalm of Ascents puts these people, Jews, probably in the midst of a pagan society. Very parallel um, passage to this where the worldviews clash is Psalm 120. We saw this a couple months ago when we were there. Uh, just consider verses 5 through 7. Woe is me, he says, for I sojourn in Meshech and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. These are foreign lands. He says, woe is me because I'm, I'm a believer in You, O Lord, and I'm dwelling in these pagan lands. And there's this clash of worldview and it's hard. He says, too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who ate peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Here he was, dwelling in a land far away from God's people, often finding himself just bashing up against other people. He's, he's trying to promote peace and they're promoting war. And the opposition is right there. And you say, what sort of conflict is he experiencing? Well, I think he's experiencing a worldview conflict. He's believing in trusting the Lord and they're believing in themselves. Psalm 120, verse 2. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Lying lips and deceitful tongues piercing deep within like sharp arrows and burning coals. He's feeling the verbal reproach of a godless society upon himself. And what was his solution? His solution was to cry to the Lord. Verse 1, in my trouble I cried to the Lord and He answered me. That's almost exactly the thrust in the message of Psalm 123. Verbal assaults are coming. Dealing with contempt. Dealing with scoffing. And where's his answer? His answer is in the Lord. Verse 1, To you I lift up my eyes. To you who are enthroned in the Lord. Look what's happening in verse 3. He says, We are greatly filled with contempt. Right? Contempt against the community. That's a, a hateful attitude. A, a, a despising and a resisting of someone else. And the Jews for years have known what despising, resisting, and hating is. Anti-Semitism has abound throughout all time. God's people have always had a target upon them. Contempt is an attitude of scorn or disgrace or disrespect. It all comes out in words of hatred against the Jews and against God's people. Verse 4 speaks about scoffing. That's belittling somebody. That is making fun of them. That is showing no respect to them. And it's no accident that these assaults are coming from the proud and the arrogant. Verse 4 describes them as coming from those who are at ease. That is, they have all the financial resources they need. They have the nice houses. They are comfortable in this life. And they're despising the low life. Makes 
It's uh, no accident they're coming from the proud at the end of verse 4. With the contempt of the proud. We're the ones that got it. And you, people of God, you Jews, you don't have it. We've got it. We hate you. They're talking about a, a social, racial divide. It's really the, the difficulty here. And I do believe that a modern day parallel as close as anything to Psalm 123 is what's happening in the homosexual agenda in our land today. If you would all say that homosexuality is a sin, I don't care how you couch it, I don't care how many words you say beforehand, I don't care how kind you are, you are going to be labeled a bigot. You're going to be labeled a homophobe. You will be thought puritanical and prudish and you will be attacked. You just try to make that an issue with people and you will be attacked. If we just say this is what God says, people don't want that. And you will clash in your worldviews. And, and Christians today are scoffed for views on homosexuality. Christians are held in contempt today. Don't think it's anything new. It came in Psalm 123. This whole society was scoffed at. They're mocked. They're made fun of. They were held in contempt. In fact, look at how much contempt they had. The New American Standard says this, that they are greatly filled with contempt. Verse 4, our soul is greatly filled. It's almost like you've got this cup and it's, it's, it's rising up to the top. We are, we are greatly filled. If you have a 16-ounce bottle, it's being filled right up to the top. If you have a gallon jug container, it's being filled right up to the top. But, but a better illustration might be in verses 3 and 4 to use not just a... Um, a jug of water, but to use the illustration of a, of a sponge. Literally, it's here. We are saturated. We are saturated with contempt. We are saturated with the scoffing of those who are at ease. Right? You, you think about a sponge. When you put it down into water and you, and you lift it up, it just kind of drips with water. You try to put more water, the sponge can't hold anymore. And that's the idea here. We are so saturated that we have reached our limit. So you've got a bottle, a 16-ounce bottle, and it's filled, and it's actually overflowing because we've reached our limit. You've got your gallon jug. It is overflowing because we've reached the limit of all of this assault upon us. You might say that they were fed up. And the opposition came against them. It, it, it's helpful at this point to look at other major translations because all of them are different. But they all get at the same idea of being saturated. The English Standard Version says this, We have had more than enough of contempt. We've had more than enough of scorn of those who are at ease. It's like, like enough is here, and we're up to the top, and we've had more than enough. We've been saturated. Or the New International Version says, We have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant. So, so there it's just like, we've endured, it never stops. It just keeps coming. Or the New King James Version says, we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled. So we are filled, but we're exceedingly filled. We're like, like going beyond that. It's, it's overflowing. I think it's safe to say the psalmist and his community has reached the breaking point. Just no more, no more they can take. The ridicule, the scoffing, the mocking has come upon them too much. They're ready to burst. They're ready to react. They're ready to be like a, a volcano. They just, they just would explode because it's too much for them. I say, what has brought them to this point? I say, words have. And attitudes. Words of the proud. Words of those who have it easiest. They deal with those in contempt and they scoff them. Apparently, the proud people had it all and looking down upon the godly who were struggling. 
We don't know what words were said here. We don't know what attitudes or the circumstances, but we do know that a harsh word stirs up anger. And that's what's being stirred up right here. We know that the rash word is like thrusts of a sword. Proverbs 12:18. We know that a man with his mouth, a godless man, can destroy his neighbor. And that's what's happening. These people are being destroyed with the mouth and the scoffing of others. The crushing was great. Ben Patterson, chaplain at Westmont College, great man, says this, Contempt and ridicule cut deep. They are a species of malice more vicious than murder. To have your fill of contempt is to feel the pains of hell itself. Something that effect was taking place. The pains against the psalmist, his community was great. Describe it. I think about a parallel. This might be Asaph, Psalm 73. Are you familiar with that? Asaph describes how the wicked were at ease. They prosper. Their bodies are fat. They got a lot to eat. They're always at ease. They're increasing in wealth. And they mock others. And they speak of oppression. And they speak from on high. And they say, why are you following God's ways? Can't you see that we're the ones who are living a good life? What use is it to follow God? And Asaph almost caved in. His feet almost slipped. And what solved this problem? God did. When he came into the sanctuary and he saw God in all his reality and saw the wicked, that they indeed will be destroyed. They may well be prospering today and things may well be going well for them, but as much as all seems well, all is not well. Because they will surely be cast down to destruction. They may be prospering now, but their doom is sure. God will destroy them in a moment. And then Asaph says, right, Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, He says, I've got this situation and we've got these wicked and arrogant and they're scoffing against Me and they've got all the power and they're at ease and I'm in turmoil. But in the end, God is enough. I've looked to you, O Lord. And that's what the Psalm 123 is. It's what I want to direct you to. We see the psalmist in Psalm 123. They're not fighting back. They're not threatening the scoffers. He's not arguing with the proud. Instead, what he does, he lifts his eyes towards the heavens and says, To you, I lift up my eyes. To you who are enthroned in the heavens. We see my second point here, that he's looking for grace. Verse 2, As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, So our eyes look to the Lord our God until He be gracious to us. Until He show His grace. He's just looking for grace. These words are similar to Psalm 121. We looked at again a couple months ago. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From whence shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And here we see Psalm 123 again. He's lifting up his eyes to the heavens. He's seeking his help from the Lord. The psalmist is looking to the heavens with the eye of faith. This isn't a, a literal eye. He's not saying, okay, I'm looking to the stars. Astrology is going to help me. He's not saying, I can see God enthroned up there. He's saying, I'm looking with the eyes of faith, looking to God to give me grace, to help me. He's looking for relief. Things are rough here upon the earth. He's looking for the Lord to help. Now, what's so good about this psalm is that though the original context here is just the, the verbal assaults upon someone, that this solution here in verse 1 can be applied to all different problems of life. All different struggles. All different opposition. All kind of difficulties that you have. If today finds you in financial difficulties, you can do the same thing. You can look to the one enthroned in the heavens for help. 
if today finds you in marital conflict. You can do the same thing. You can look to the throne in heaven, to the Lord in heaven for your help. If today finds you having cares and anxieties upon your heart, you can do the same thing. Look to the one enthroned in the heavens for your help. Or maybe today as you're finding yourself dealing with difficult children, rebellious children, look to the Lord who's enthroned in the heavens. Maybe today finds you overwhelmed. Well, look to the Lord. Maybe today finds you sick. Some disease. Well, look to the Lord. Maybe today finds you apart from Jesus Christ. If you don't know His forgiveness, look to the Lord for your help. Maybe you know the story of Charles Spurgeon. Arguably the best preacher the world has ever known. He grew up in a preacher's home and yet wasn't saved. And from age about 12 to 16, maybe 11 to 16, for about five years, he talks about the internal struggle that he dealt with with his sin. He knew the judgment of God upon his, his, uh, his sin and yet he, was, he wasn't finding relief. He was like Pilgrim, had the big burden on his back and he couldn't get that sin off even though he'd been told many times. His grandfather, who he grew up with, taught him the Gospel many times. It just wasn't sinking in. He didn't, he didn't know how to get rid of his sin. And then one cold December Sunday morning, he was heading off to the church where he normally goes and, and he was walking and he, the snow was so bad he couldn't get there. And so he went off to this primitive Methodist church where he said that there were a dozen or maybe 15, he said, gathered and assembled together and the, the regular minister wasn't there. And so my guess is that it was just a, a layman who found out that morning he was preaching. Probably did the best that he could. He took the text, Isaiah 45, verse 22, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. And, else. and Spurgeon is autobiography. It's a great read. He, he talked about how simple the sermon was. He talked about how uneducated the preacher was, how simple the sermon was, that all he did was he just took and repeated this phrase, Look unto me! Look unto me! Look! Look, he said. And Spurgeon said, okay, well, he, he, I, I, I got your point. And then, then he said things like, Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to sit at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. And that morning, Charles Spurgeon looked to Jesus for the very first time in his life and understood how the burden would fall from his back as he looked to Jesus upon the cross. And from that day onward, he would say with the hymn writer, which, by the way, as I recall, is on his gravestone, London, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. So if this morning finds you apart from Christ, I just say this, lift up your eyes to the heavens, to Him who is enthroned in the heavens and look to Him for help. As one has said, well, it's not what you're doing that gets you to heaven, it's where you're looking. And so look to Jesus. For every problem, you remember when the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people of Israel and when they bit the people of Israel, they died of the poison? The people repented, came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord that He removed the serpents from us. And Moses came to the Lord. God instructed him. He said this, make a fiery serpent set on a standard and it shall come about that everyone who's bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And he lifted high the standard had a snake on it. 
it's a symbol of physicians today, just the healing serpent you just need to look to. And as they're bitten, if they found their way and looked, it's an expression that says, I, I, can't, I can't solve this snake problem myself. I need help. I need to look to Him who can be my help. And as they did, they were healed. What a great picture of how God works. When in sick or in trouble or in need, He wants for us just to look to Him for relief and rescue. And He wants to rescue us in a way that makes it clear that He rescued us so that He gets all the glory. Jesus used this illustration of the serpent when speaking to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Looking to Jesus for eternal life. And so I just say, church family, look to Jesus and be healed. Look to Jesus and be saved. Look to Jesus and live and walk appropriately. That's what Hebrews 12.2 says. That we ought to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right, Look to Christ who died on the cross and then was raised and ascended and now sits in the heavenly places. Look to Him. It's the life that God calls us to, to live. is a life of looking to God. Well, in verse 2, then the psalmist gives us a word picture. He describes how it is that we ought to look. Right? Do, we, do we go out each night and, and look into the heavens like we see the stars? No, no, no. It's much more than that. He says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until He be gracious to us. He pictures us as servants. He pictures us as slaves. He, he pictures us looking intently at the hand of our, our Master with a readiness and a willingness to please our Master and obey. And it's the hand of the Master that directs the servant right, to get to this or to go there. And it has been said that uh, if the Master has to open his mouth, the servant has failed in his duty. So intent, you're just going to watch the hand of what, what you want to do. What, what, what's the Master calling you to do? But I think there's more to this picture than just a continual looking to the Master as a servant does. I, I think also you get the sense where a servant in those days was entirely submissive to the Master. The Master was the provision for the servant. The servant was dependent upon everything for the Master. Food came from the hand of the Master. Clothing came from the hand of the Master. Shelter came from the hand of the Master. Anything a servant received was from the hand of a Master. And thus it made servants in the ancient world very vulnerable. So everything came from their Masters. They were then at His or her total mercy. And all I could do was hope for the kindness of the Masters to provide them everything they needed. And, and how apt is my point? That they were looking for grace. They're looking for grace. Looking at the Master's hand for grace. Right, right. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until He's gracious to us. And there's this, this consistent looking and waiting and longing for His grace to come. Knowing that I can't solve a problem. I can't provide for myself. I need God to provide for me. I need my Master to provide for me. So I'm looking to You and and God, You know my help. And You know my problem and my difficulty. There's nothing that's too difficult for God. All things are possible with Him. And God, all things are possible. Would You please come? I need Your mercy. I need Your grace. I need Your help. And that's the posture of where we need to be all the time. Struggling with some problem. 
you got some difficulty and you're like, look to the Lord 24-7. Just always trust in Him and just always put your request before Him of what you need. It's our standing before the Lord as servants of the Most High. We're slaves of Jesus Christ, expecting nothing but His mercy and grace. Just longing for His mercy and grace. Listen, we don't stand before the Lord as an employee, as if we've done our thing and now we deserve some other things. We stand before the Lord as His servant looking for grace. Now, here's the good news, okay? God is a gracious God. He's lavish in His mercy. It overflows and it abounds. So what God proclaims, God Himself, Exodus 34, we talked to Moses about, about passing before him. He says, this is, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That is the Lord our God. He is a merciful and gracious God. So, as we trust Him for grace, we know He's a gracious God to, to give. When Jesus told the story about His heavenly Father, He described Him as this, this Father who is lavish and wasteful with His grace and mercy. So much so that He's got two sons and one son comes and asks for half of the inheritance, His portion of the inheritance. The Father knew about this son that He's going to waste it. And yet, what does the Father do? He just wastes His mercy. He's lavish with it. He is, he is prodigal with it. He is he's wasteful what that means. And then the prodigal son goes and he wastes all of his resources. And then, Jesus paints His heavenly Father just like this Father who is ready to forgive the repentant Son when He comes back and restore Him to a place of dignity and honor where He came from. That's the lavish grace of God that we have. When Paul described the kindness of the Lord, he used words like this, God being rich in mercy. God having great love towards us. God having surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us. Now, that's not to deny His justice. The Bible clearly declares that, that God is just and right and will punish all iniquity. That's the second half of Exodus 34, verse 7 that I didn't quote. God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. God will punish all sin. God will punish every sin. His justice demands it. But that's why Jesus came to die. Because He died for the sins of those who would believe. So that, that, that we can stand before God, not because He has washed our sin underneath the rug, not because He's hidden it someplace, but because Jesus took our place upon the cross so that we can stand before God. God can be just in punishing Christ for our sins. He can be the justifier to bring us to God through our faith. And God is a gracious God. And He is gracious to those who wait for Him. He's gracious to those who look to Him, as eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters. And when the psalmist paints, paints us here slaves, waiting and hoping for God to be gracious, these are the very ones to whom He will extend His grace. That's our last point here this morning. See the psalmist filled with contempt, looking for grace. Verses 1 and 2. Finally, verse 3a, pleading for grace. He's pleading for grace. Look at his prayer in verse 3. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. 
He just said at the end of verse 2, I'm looking to the Lord until He's gracious to me. But He's not passive. He's not just saying nothing. He's not just saying, okay, I'm just looking for His grace, looking for His grace. He's making it known. And the fact that He says it twice, be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. That's twice He's just pleading the grace and kindness of God. It's an earnest prayer. It's a cry that God loves to hear. Do you remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18 of the two men that went to the temple to pray? One was a Pharisee, a righteous person. The other was a tax collector, the greatest sinner of the day. The Pharisee stood up and prayed to himself, God, I thank You that I'm not like unjust other people. I'm like, not like swindlers or just or adulterers or even like this tax collector. If I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. And he, you just see him going, look at how good I am. And God doesn't look to people who are good in themselves, but God looks to the one in contrast, the tax collector, who wasn't standing like the Pharisee. Instead, he was stooping away from the temple. He didn't even come near the temple. Such was his humility. He wasn't standing tall. He was bent over, beating his breast, and his prayer said nothing about his own achievements, but all about pleading God's mercy. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that's what he's, the psalmist is saying here. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Because we've got these troubles and trials in our life. God, be merciful. And remember what Jesus said about these two men that went to pray? He said, I tell you the truth. This man, right, the humble man, went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, God loves the humble who cry to Him for mercy. You remember when Jesus was leaving Jericho on His way up to Jerusalem for the triumphal entry? He's right on the outskirts of the town and there are a couple of blind men. And uh, they hear, oh, the, you know, this buzz about that. They start asking, who, what, what, what's happening? They say, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. They say, Jesus. And they, they cried out then, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And they repeated it loudly. Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Now, there was nothing in these blind men that deserved anything, but they just kept crying. Even when the people think, shh, shh, don't bother Jesus. Don't bother Jesus. You know what they did? They shouted all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Jesus heard their cry. And it's typical of God. It's typical of Christ. He heard their cry. He went and attended to their need. He says, what do you want me to do for you? They said, Lord, we want our eyes to be open." And so Jesus, as Matthew 20, verse 34 says, moved with compassion. He touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sights and followed Him. And time after time again, you see the same pattern of Jesus showing favor to those who come to Him in humility. You remember the Syrophoenician woman who's begging for her daughter back up in Tyre and Sidon? And she said, Lord, heal my daughter. He says, I'm not sent only but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're a foreigner. And she said, right, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the Master's table. I'm a dog that just eats the crumb. Would you please be merciful to me and help me? That's what the call and the cry was. And Jesus did that. Healed the daughter that day. Or the woman with the hemorrhaging problem. Remember she said, if, I, if I've only just, just touched touch his garment, I'll be made well. I mean, just it's an act of faith, but it's an act of humility. That just, I'm not bringing attention to myself. I'm just going to touch the end. 
and if I do that, I'll be okay. And, and Jesus felt the power going from him. He knew it was there. And he turned around and blessed the woman and said, Your faith has made you well. I think she came in humility. Not, not demanding attention from Jesus, but just saying, Let him pass by. Let me just, just touch him and that'll be enough. Time after time, Jesus shows his favor towards those who come in humility. Or the centurion. Remember, his servant was sick. And Jesus said, well, I'll come. He said, no, 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 you don't need to come. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. There's great humility there. There's great faith there. There's great trust. But he says, no, no, you don't take your time. I just know you're powerful. You just say the word and then I'll go on my way. He didn't need to have Jesus to have this big party in his house. And so I really ask you, is this how you come to the Lord? Do you come to the Lord begging pleading just for mercy and for grace? Do you look to the Lord looking for grace? Do you plead the Lord pleading for grace? And so here, here's the promise of Scriptures that God loves such prayers. God loves this cry of people. God loves to answer these sorts of cries because toward the arrogant and boastful, God turns a deaf ear. God is opposed to the proud. But as Proverbs 3 and 1 Peter 5 says, God gives grace to the humble. In this psalm, it's really very interesting. We, we see both the humble and the proud. Verse 2 describes the humble servant who's just, just looking to do the Master's will, claiming nothing of their own. And verse 4 describes the proud. They're at ease. They look down at others. They're superior. Even this morning, I, I ask you, uh, which camp are you in? Uh, are you the proud side or are you the humble side? Do you have a degree of arrogance about yourself or do you have a degree of humility about yourself? I, I heard someone this week talk about the difference between a pride, prideful person and a humble person. And it has to do with God's Word. When God's Word comes to you, do you see it as law to be obeyed or do you see it as advice to be evaluated? That is great. Because the, the proud person will say, well, what, what's really important is me. I'm the king. And what God says, okay, I'll just evaluate that. And then maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll not. But the humble one says, whatever God says, I will do it. I'm his servant. I'm his slave. I'm going to do it. I'm going to submit myself there. And it, and it doesn't come with an arrogance like the Pharisees. It comes with a humility that says, God, help me to keep your word. Are you proud or are you humble? Are you looking to God for help? Are you looking down upon others? See, the reality of this life is this. The proud of this world will oppress the humble. They will. Verses 3 and 4 are nothing new. Verses 3 and 4 will continue for years to come. It's the proud that oppress the humble. The humble have only to cry out to God for help. And the God will be the one that turns the tables to have the humble be exalted. But it may not be until after your life that you're exalted. That, that was Jesus. right? He was the most humble person to ever walk. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then after His death is when God highly exalted Him. It's in the kingdom that the last will be first and the first will be last when God sorts everything out exactly as it is. There may be payment in this life God may exalt the humble, as He often does, gives them grace. 
but it may be that it waits for the year to come. And so if you are humble, you will experience contempt of the proud. You will experience the scoffing of those who are at ease. And when you see that, when you experience that, I encourage you to look up. Look up to the Lord for help because He's the only one that can help you in that moment. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what rich treasures are here. What glorious gospel truths. I pray You'd help sink them deep into our hearts. God, lead us into the humble way. Lead us to look to You for all trials and difficulties that we face in our life. Lead us to the cross to look to Jesus, who alone is our hope. And there are are problems and difficulties and trials of people's lives here at church that I can never fix. Uh, but, But you can. And if you choose to show your grace to us, you will fix them. And so we we just plead that you would be gracious to us. I pray for us, a church body, that we would be humble pleaders. God, not looking to ourselves and our own resources and strength, but looking to you for all things. Help us in these things, O Lord. And I even pray for our our picnic that we're going to have here in a, a few moments. God, may you show your grace to us. We pray for people in the neighborhood to come. God, we might reach out to them, love them, and serve them, help them, get to know them. Um, God, guide us in these things. So, it was so good for me to go around yesterday and, and speak to a handful of people and talk to them. God, we would pray that we would be a beacon and a light here of what it means to humbly proclaim and trust and rest in Jesus and know the grace you've given us that we can freely give that to other people to see your kingdom extended and glorified. We thank you, O Lord, for the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.